Hey, everybody. My name is Justin Murphy, and this is the Other Life Podcast, where I talk with indie creators, digital hustlers, and unique internet personalities about how to escape from institutional conformity and succeed on the internet instead. To learn more about the Other Life Project, go to otherlife.co. That's otherlife.co. And if you like what I'm doing, I just have one quick favor to ask. Please go and just leave a review in iTunes. It really helps others find the show, and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and a big shout out, especially to my patrons. I could not do this without you all. So thanks. And now, on to the show. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Other Life Podcast, the by far best podcast on the internet. We have a special guest here with us today, hanging in the wings. His name is Dryden Brown, and he's got some really cool projects going on. He's very interested in new models for city building, and he's got also just a very interesting philosophical outlook and even an aesthetic outlook that I think a lot of people in my audience is really going to find quite interesting and compelling. So he's got a lot of big ideas. Uh, he and I have a few mutual friends and I've heard uh, very good things about him and and his ideas. So I'm excited to have him on and uh, to learn more in, specifically about his his big current project, which is called Blue Book Cities. And if you look it up on the internet, you can kind of get a, a a feel for it, but it's a little mysterious. And so I'm really interested to 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 learn more from Dryden about what's really going on under the hood and how he sees this possibility for essentially creating radically visionary charter cities on a kind of business model. I, I'm super interested to learn more about how he's thinking about this. And I, I know a lot of you in the audience are going to be very interested in this as well. So yeah, we'll learn more about Dryden and Blue Book Cities in just a minute. That'll be the talk, the, the, the focus of this talk. And uh, yeah, just wanted to give a little introduction. Uh, in the meantime, you, make sure you go ahead and subscribe to the channel. And folks, by the way, click the little bell when you subscribe, or if you're already subscribed, click the little bell. A large portion of you have not clicked the bell, which means you don't get notifications when I do badass live streams like this, and uh, you don't want to miss out. You don't. You never know when uh, the next live stream is going to be something that you're super interested in with someone you really want to see and talk with. So uh, yeah, subscribe and click the bell, and also go and subscribe to the podcast on your phone because I don't do all of the podcasts as live streams, only when it feels right. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Sometimes it's just nice to just do a podcast staring at the ceiling with no video. It's just kind of more chill, and I kind of do... I do what I want. So uh, sometimes there are really badass podcasts on the Other Life Podcast that you don't actually even come across on YouTube. So subscribe to the channel on YouTube, click the bell, and then subscribe to the podcast on your phone because I think some of you still haven't. <clears throat> All right, uh, I think that's enough uh, for for housekeeping. I uh, don't want to keep Dryden waiting too long. He's he's hanging in the wings. Uh, the only other thing I'll share with you all is that my wife and I are moving to Austin. <laughs> Yep. Uh, we're in Montana. We've been here for six months or so, and it's been awesome. But uh, probably the next time you see me on the live stream, uh, we might very well be in Austin. And my goal, one of my goals is to basically kind of blow up my little media company here, which is like doing pretty, pretty well, just as a totally niche, solo operated, small internet project uh, in the wilderness. It's never had any type of like social scene or or kind of physical community around the podcast it's always been from england or from montana or from albuquerque it's been my my roaming nomadic one-man shop but uh, i have a lot of friends in austin even more going there and i think it's just going to be a really good spot for 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 my vision and and what i'm building with with other life because there's a, i already know there's a ton of other people there interested in stuff that revolves around kind of the other life ecosystem stuff like crypto and 3d printed guns and just a bunch of weirdos basically doing badass shit so 
yeah, we're, we're going to rent a place for a year and we're going to go there and see what happens. If I don't like it, whatever, uh, maybe we'll come back to Montana or do something else. But I think for a year, it'll really help accelerate uh, the the other life project. And I'll just get a bunch of badass people uh, circulating around what I'm building a little bit more and get them on the show and, and do some events also. So anyway, enough of housekeeping. That's what I got on. That's my little update to you all. Let's get on with the show then, shall we? I'm going to bring on uh, Mr. Brown himself and we're going to we're going to talk about Blue Book Cities. All right, Dryden, you're live with us. How you doing today, man? You good? Oh, I'm not hearing you. Hang on, let me make sure you. Oh, you're muted. There you go. That was on my end. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm doing well, man. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, totally excited to talk with you and learn more about your projects. They're super, super uh, tantalizing. Very, very interesting projects. Uh, but there's not a ton of detail. I think that makes a lot of sense because it's new and you're still kind of um, filling things out. And I'm sure there's a privacy element to it also, which I totally respect. But I'm just really excited to learn a little bit more about what you're really seeing, what you're really trying to do, and 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 more specifically, how you plan on doing it. So maybe just to start, uh, why don't you just give us the quick elevator pitch on what is Blue Book Cities? What's the idea there? Yeah, uh, sure. So yeah, I mean, the core idea is um, <clears throat> we're seeing like sort of a massive deterioration of our social fabric in the United States, like radical political division. And then there's this problem that Peter Thiel talks about, um, sort of technological uh, stagnation. And I think sort of th these two things are actually the sort of like coming apart and the stagnation are, are actually linked. And I think sort of the issue that we're facing is a lack of sort of uh, a coherent sort of vision for the future um, that we can rally around and build towards, right? Like sort of a lot of these guys like like Teal do a bunch of interesting sort of philosophical work. It's sort of like the, met the meta level. It's like we need a interesting vision for the, an interesting vision for the future or something like this. Um, but but we need to ship one. We need we need to we need to build one and ship it. And our our sort of like vision for the future, the future we desire, um, is implied by our belief system, right? So the notion here is building uh, building communities and ultimately societies around sort of belief systems around shared values. Um, and this wasn't possible, uh, you know, e even a year ago. I was exploring a bunch of ideas in the city space. I was like bouncing around. Uh, West Africa and, you know, le learning about all this stuff, you know, how, how do you actually build a, a city? Kind of a crazy proposition. Um, but really, when when COVID happened, um, sort of, you know, vis-a-vis -vis this sort of city building stuff, the really interesting thing was um, the labor market migrated to the cloud. Now you can move sort of wherever you want and your job will follow you if you're a knowledge worker in, in many cases. Um, and uh, I think this is going to create like a shift like sort of in urban dynamics that's bigger than any that we've seen in the last like, you know, 300 years or something like that, um, where people sort of no longer are moving to cities on the basis of the labor market, you know, sort of city is a labor market, this is sort of the Lombardo theory. I, I don't think cities are going to be primarily labor markets anymore for knowledge workers. Um, I think they're going to be sort of places where we come together around affinities. And this is how we get sort of the social fabric back. And this is how we find sort of, you know, shared visions for the future that we can all agree to build towards. and 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 stop blocking each other with you know sort of dumb regulations and so forth awesome awesome yeah that's a badass and i think i completely agree with a lot of that and i know a lot of people are very interested in this in fact i recently wrote a little bit about this and got enough uh kind of positive response that i actually organized a few people into a big zoom call because i basically said one little thing about something even just vaguely like this got a lot of inbound i was like oh wow there's a lot of interest in this so i just invited everyone who who replied to me uh to a zoom call and just about Kind of the question of of uh, building basically uh, cities um, off the map of where people are naturally kind of uh, agglomerating in the interest of some sort of more intentional vision based uh, kind of co community of some kind. 
And yeah. it was really just a discussion session. It was like a brainstorm just to check in with, just to see who was all interested in this. And uh, there were like a lot of people, like serious, ambitious people. But the the it's a very challenging puzzle when you think about how to do it. There's a lot of people that are interested in this, as I've seen myself. But when you really start thinking down to the details of like, okay, what's the right business model? I mean, I've, I've had so many conversations with a lot of really smart people kind of brainstorming, but it's not clear to me what what really is the best approach. So it seems like you're a few steps ahead and you you have a vision for how to do this. So I would love to learn just a little bit more about like specifically what is the business model that Blue Book Cities envisions? Yeah, totally. Um, <clears throat> so I think, um, yeah, sort of like b before 12 months ago, it was basically like you're fighting against people's economic interests, getting them to move to someplace with no existing labor market. Um, it, it's, it's really quite hard. It's like, the, yeah, I mean, like, there sort of was a cloud labor market, but it was fairly illiquid and um, sort of, yeah, it, it was quite hard. I think now like it's, it's like radically easier though it is still hard, um, but sort of like the typical sort of like modality of new city building is you acquire a piece of land um, that has some geographical characteristic that lends itself to economic activity. So generally that's like a port or something. You buy like a harbor and you build a port or something like this. The problem with this sort of like mode is that it's incredibly expensive. Neither of us can afford uh, ports. And certainly not, uh, you know, when we're bidding against like, you know, the Singapore Sovereign Wealth Fund, like Temasek or whatever for, they, I think they know where ports should be. We probably won't have a super compelling variant view as to where ports should be. Um, but sort of with the labor market migrating to the cloud, now what you can do is you can aggregate demand. Um, you can aggregate demand sort of in the cloud, create like an enormous amount of network value and solve this collective action problem whereby, you know, people want to live in cities sort of if it sort of, sort of depends on, on person, but generally like you can find some people that would be willing to move somewhere if 2000 other people that meet a bunch of certain requirements are also moving, right? So it's sort of like this Kickstarter thing where you reach a certain threshold and then you all move. And um, sort of to solve the sort of like, I mean, it's still quite expensive to build buildings and so forth, but what we are trying to do is partner with a country that wants to attract a slice of Silicon Valley and is, is sort of down to forge like a partnership to do that with us, whereby, you know, they contribute land, um, you know, perhaps your equity in the project and sort of, you know, the terms are obviously to be sort of negotiated, but, um, you know, can contribute land. We bring out, we, we like, you know, sort of work on doing the sort of biggest human capital transfer, um, you know, perhaps in history enabled by the internet. And yeah, I think like a sort of important like way to frame this is like sort of, yeah, I mean, like cities, new cities are basically like social networks that monetize not with ads, but with uh, land value appreciation. So this is sort of like, you know, like strictly like this sort of like the, yeah, I mean, like, the, the yeah the, the value cat the value creation is like land value appreciation and then you sort of monetize that by like leasing and selling land and so forth but yeah okay, okay great so basically your model is organize people in the cloud build a tight-knit community create the social network capital and 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 basically build the buy-in at the early stage based on the internet alone and then with that critical mass of of capable committed and ready people you go to a country and you basically negotiate with the country to have what is basically a, a kind of charter city on some kind of land, land mass that you would own and that you would have some kind of recognized uh, governmental authority over. Is that right? Um, so on the governance piece, I mean, it, these things are a little bit um, tricky. So, I mean, we've, um, yeah, I mean, basically, I think I think the model that's, that's, that's quite good is the Dubai International Financial Center's model. Um, so, you know, sort of in Dubai, there's this little neighborhood, they, they have British common law, and they have a separate regulator that's sort of more tuned to um, the sort of regulatory norms of, <clears throat> excuse me, of, um, of uh, you know, sort of foreign multinationals. Um, 
you know, particularly in the in the finance industry. So for us, like what we want to do is set up a special jurisdiction, um, probably that had something analogous to the DIFC's model. And we're working with people who worked on building the DIFC and so forth. So it, it, this isn't like sort of, uh, you know, we're, we're not we're not trying to, to be a, a totally sovereign nation or something like that. We want to partner with the government and, and build something really cool that sort of works for us and works for them and um, is mutually beneficial. So I see. Yeah. I, I see. OK, right. That makes sense. And the and so then you would just run it like a city, basically. Uh, or is there is there an innovative angle on how the mm-hmm. how the city or the network would uh, reproduce itself financially? Like, is there is there kind of a, a business model aspect where everyone who buys into the city is, you know, kind of a shareholder in uh, yeah. a kind of corporation or how does that how does that work out? Totally. Um, yeah. I mean, so the model that so a lot of these countries have an interesting model whereby, like, if you invest something like 250K, like euros, probably um, sort of depending on the many countries in like sort of around the med, which is the area that we're like quite focused on. We want to return um, uh, to, to the med. Go to we've been looking at a bunch of countries sort of in that region um, and just you know beautiful, beautiful beaches, like amazing, like climbing mountains and so forth. Um, but they have these programs that uh, are sort of like investment uh, for citizen for citizenship programs whereby you can invest like 250K or something like that in real estate and get, um, you know, a passport. And I, I think like this model is, is, is fairly, um, is fairly attractive. Um, but most people that we're recruiting don't have the sort of upfront capital to do something like that. Like we, we want sort of the young, ambitious people who want to go out onto the frontier, build the future and so forth. I, I, you know, I would, I would struggle to find, you know, 250K in spare cash lying around. Um, so what we want to do is structure <clears throat> structure something where we take on a lot of the balance sheet risk. We like sort of front people, like you know, offer people a mortgage for um, for for their like apartment or house or whatever. You know, they get the passport, and then sort of as they pay monthly rent, um, they're also purchasing equity in the underlying land asset. So I mean, like you know, sort of the cost basis might be like half, you know, it might be like four or 500 million or something like this of like the whole project, like phase one. Um, but like Manhattan's land value is $1.75 trillion. Manhattan, like just the land alone is worth more than Amazon. So there's this sort of interesting dynamic whereby like you're joining a startup, like you're joining a startup city and you're earning equity in the startup city by living there. And, um, you know, we, we intend for it to go to the moon. We'll, we'll see, but um, yeah. And how many people do you think are you're looking for as that kind of initial critical mass to really get this kicked off? Um, yeah, I mean, so we think of it sort of like a small like college town on sort of like day one, um, you know, something like 2000 people. Um, so we launched an online community that's sort of like that. Yeah, I mean, I can get into all this stuff. It's sort of like a longer conversation, like sort of like built around these shared values of um, sort of like like pursuing heroic projects and so forth. But we've 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 like a sort of we have a ton of demand like sort of towards getting 2000 people or something to that extent. Um, so yeah, I mean, the, it, some, some of the like small college town is something like 2000 day one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I could totally see that. And it's interesting that you lean towards the Mediterranean. What, what drives that choice as, as making the Mediterranean the, the ideal place for this? Cause one could easily imagine arguments in different directions. Like you said, you've been to Africa. I've never been to Africa, but I've recently, I recently read uh, David French's book called uh, China's second continent. I think that's what mm-hmm. it's called. And, uh, it's crazy. I mean, Africa's super interesting right now. There's so much cool stuff going on in Africa. And because they have weak governments, there's all of this wiggle room, uh, to, to put it politely, in, in Africa. And uh, so it would seem to me that somewhere like Africa would be um, a much better bet. But uh, what draws you to the Mediterranean? Um, well, I mean, do you want to move to, do you want to move to, to Nigeria? 
Well, isn't the whole proposition of, of your vision that it's the people and the quality of governance and life that you're going to get there, that it could virtually be anywhere. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I, to, to some extent, but I mean, there's still, it's still like, I, I mean, like, so one of the thing, one of the things that people care quite a bit about is sort of connectivity. Right. So it's like, if, if you're in the Mediterranean, if you're in like Cyprus or something like this, um, you, you can fly to Barcelona, you know, very cheaply, very quickly. You can fly to London, you can fly to Dubai and so forth. So connectivity is like quite important. Um, and, uh, there, there's more sort of basic infrastructure that has to be developed if you do something in like Ghana or Nigeria. I, I love Ghana. I think Ghana is an amazing place. And, and you know, we spend a bunch of time there sort of exploring. I, I also think I, I feel um, like a little bit uncomfortable with uh, like just being a white guy and like going over there and trying to do this, this right. grand like, you know, sort of political real estate project. It's, it's like, um, I mean, the reception is like quite good from um, you know, the people that we speak with there, they're like, oh yeah, that would be sweet. Bring a bunch of like, you know, foreign direct investment over and jobs and like, you know, and so forth. Um, but it ends up just being really challenging politically where there are a ton of people, mostly in the States, frankly, that are like, you know, not, not saying like, you know, super nice things and, and making it, um, just really difficult to sort of like win popular support. Cause it's like, you know, I, I have thick skin. Right. I don't really care what people say on Twitter or something like that, but, but it actually like makes it really difficult to get a project like this done. If, if, uh, if there's an enormous amount of <clears throat> backlash and, and sometimes there is when you do projects like that, you know? Yeah. I think that's a very sensible calculation. I, I totally get that. I think what's an interesting possibility in the future is that public opinion towards projects in Africa might change a little bit when Americans realize what China is doing in Africa, because yeah. then it becomes a totally different framing. It's like, I mean, what, what Chinese people moving into Africa are doing in Africa is quite aggressive uh, from what Westerners would call like a kind of colonial attitude or colonial project. So you're, I think you're totally right that you try to build a country or a small, you know, charter city in Africa yeah. and it's not, it's not the best optics. And I agree, like as a white person in America, like I'm not particularly interested in, uh, you know, meddling in, in, in the affairs of, of foreign countries. But, um, when you realize that Chinese are moving in and doing this stuff even more aggressively, it does become a kind of international politics kind of story where you could even make the case that um, it you're all, we're almost as West as Westerners, we're almost ethically obligated to at least like uh, match or meet the Chinese colonialism against Africa to kind of like uh, hold down, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like, uh, you know, we need like the, the whole like white savior complex, because that's not what I'm saying at all. But it's more like, um, and when you realize that Chinese people are moving into Africa quite aggressively in, in a in, in what really kind of reflects a, a kind of colonial critique, you, there's a good case to be made that uh, Westerners going to Africa to kind of uh, oppose and 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 create a bulwark against like increasingly aggressive uh, Chinese weak you know soft colonialism basically. Yeah. Um, that, that there's an ethical case to be made that that's actually uh, quite a good thing to to be done. No, I'm, I, I, I totally agree, man. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I've spent a bunch of time thinking about this. Um, I mean, um, yeah, I, I think, I think that's definitely true. I think if you go to these countries and you talk to the governments, they'd vastly prefer to take American money over, over Chinese money. And if you can create, I mean, if you can create like a mechanism by which, uh, West Africa has access to like global liquidity, sort of North American liquidity, American liquidity, like that's a great thing. That's, that's a really great thing. Um, our government can't compete. Like the DIFC is not going to compete with like, you know, China's proxies for like specific deals, but, um, you know, they can help enable environments that allow like all of sort of Western capital markets to like sort of have access 
greater access to that region. And I think like building a financial center in West Africa, there's uh, particularly in Ghana, there's like an amazing case to be made. I mean, their biggest highway is George W. Bush Highway. Like they, they like they like people from the states. So what I'm doing like to, to, to that end is I, I have um, there's sort of actually like a nascent new city community, if you can believe that, of, of people who are interested in in building these things. And I have a couple of friends who um, are from there, um, you know, came came back to the U.S. for for school and and want to sort of like, you know, um, go back and, and, you know, return and, uh, and work on these projects. So I'm, I'm helping to whatever extent I can. And I want to invest in these projects, um, it, at least personally. Um, right on. I, I'm probably not going to do them through my company. So, yeah. Right on. Okay, cool, cool. Now, if you're interested in doing it in, in Europe, in the Mediterranean, a lot of people there would say that the problem with Western governments is all of the bureaucratic sclerosis and, and the constraints yeah. on really doing this type of thing radically. So at the point you're going to do it in the Mediterranean, why not just on a hundred acres in Montana or something like that? What's, what's, how do, you, how do you see the prospect of this sort of thing happening within America uh, versus the Mediterranean? What's the calculation there? It's still way easier to do it over there. It's, it's way, way easier. If you go to like a relatively small country too, it's like, I mean, like the, the GDP contribution is so enormous relative to what it would be in the U.S., um, and yeah, I mean, there are these little like pockets of just absolute beauty in the Mediterranean. I mean, particularly on the Adriatic, frankly, um, that are relatively undeveloped. And I think it'd be nice for them to stay that way, basically. But there are a few pieces of land that, you know, you know, a few thousand acres, 10,000 acres or whatnot, where you could build like an absolutely amazing community for tech workers, sort of new, new Silicon Valley, new Silicon Beach. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you, you can you can sit down with the politicians in these places and have a conversation with them about how like sort of what your value proposition is to them. Right. It's like, hey, like we can offer you a slice of Silicon Valley. That's extremely attractive. America already has a slice of Silicon Valley. They have like the whole pie and um, it, it just sort of the, the 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 incentive to attract a group like us is like way, way lower in like Texas or something like that. And like so much of like so, so many of the issues like are at the, are at sort of the federal level that, you know, even states that would really, really want to work with us couldn't, couldn't do as much as like a, you know, a whole government might do. I also think, I, I also have a whole like sort of like political take on this where I think um, if we want to, if we want to build like a totally new culture, like you were, you sort of referenced like aesthetics earlier. If we want to build a totally new culture, I think we have to go out onto the frontier. I think we have to go out to somewhere that, that, um, is is like fundamentally new at least for people in 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 the valley and sort of you know plant our roots there um yeah i mean my my ancestors came over from ireland like hundreds and hundreds of years ago before the civil war um to the united states because of these same issues like economic stagnation political division um and they built a new society sort of on the frontier according with their values um and yeah i take a lot of inspiration from that i think i think we need to sort of go further Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I love it. Um, and so maybe we should talk a little bit more about this kind of guiding aesthetic vision that you have, because as you're building Blue Book Cities, you're also clearly wagering that a, a compelling aesthetic vision is is part and parcel of this type of project, as you kind of alluded to before. And I think for shorthand, you kind of name your your general vision, hero futurism. Why don't you tell us what what is hero futurism and paint a picture of it in people's minds since it's an aesthetic, like what are some exemplars or some, some key symbols that define the hero futurist aesthetic? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, hero futurism is a value system and the core idea um, is that it's our, is our, it's our purpose to pursue immortality. And we make sort of a biological argument for this, whereby 
you know, sort of like every living being is trying to um, sort of avoid death in every moment. They're trying to propagate their genetic material sort of through space, through time. Um, and sort of the inversion of this is, is they're pursuing immortality. And the way that this is sort of a uh, sort of denial of death, Ernest Becker sort of framing, but the way that we sort of cash this out in our sort of like constructed symbolic world, um, you know, sort of via, via heroism, we try to pursue immortality in this sort of symbolic sense through heroism. Um, and the sort of core notion of, of sort of hero futurism is that we should be pursuing immortality in all these different ways. Um, the sort of the one that we tend to focus on the most in terms of, um, you know, the sort of praxis in our own lives and so forth is, is heroism, trying to find a, a heroic project, a project that's um, sort of massively beneficial to society. And perhaps um, there's like a courage arbitrage or something like that. Like, it's so crazy. It's so out there. Um, the people haven't tried it, uh, but but sort of like if you sort of have faith in in yourself and in the frontier and so forth, um, you know you can make kind of wonderful things happen. And um, and and this is sort of the the sort of like the the sort of theory. I'm putting out like a long a long long paper. Like we're we're building a whole website around this. But um, in terms of the aesthetic vision, um, yeah, I mean we think a lot about um, it. Yeah, I mean it's sort of like I, I think you you want to have like these these sort of guiding values that like mediate your futurist vision. And you wanna have these sort of, yeah, these sort of like ancient eternal sort of like aesthetic themes that mediate your futurist vision. And so I I really like, there are a ton of like sort of like, like video game designers and people like that who build sort of like spiritual cyberpunk stuff. And I, I really like that a lot. Um, but but yeah, we're sort of going for like a Neo Gilded Age sort of, uh, you know, kind of aesthetic and right. we're messing around with it. We're figuring it out, you know. You said you, you can think of some game designers or some other figures you want go ahead and drop some names or titles like what are some what are some uh exemplary works of whether that be video games or movies or what's kind of your uh pantheon of hero futurist representatives yeah i mean i don't play video games at all but there's this there's this guy named daniel uh liang um who i've been talking to a little bit um he makes like amazing stuff i i've been like posting it on my twitter um, but we're talking to him about doing something with him potentially. Um, and yeah, man, I mean, I think like, like, I, I think like the opposite of Blade Runner, like I love Blade Runner, but like, like sort of if Blade Runner is the black pill, like the white pill of Blade, like, I, I don't know what that might be, but that's sort of like, um, an aesthetic ideal. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, we, we think a lot about like sort of how things make us feel like we want to live in a physical environment that is sort of like empowering and uplifting. Like we want to, we want to like sort of like walk in like a heroic environment, like live with heroic architecture and so forth. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I really like a lot of, you know, classical architecture. Um, I mean, I mean, specifically like I like, um, you know, sort of as it pertains to like my projects, I really like the sort of parametric stuff like Zaha Hadid. And I think like thinking about sort of melding these two aesthetics in some way that's, that's sensible and not just a total bastardization is like fairly compelling to me. Yeah, that's really interesting to say the opposite of Blade Runner because yeah, I mean dystopian cyber dystopianism is is very chic, right? That's a very hot, but you basically want a kind of cyber trad utopianism sort of in, in a way, is that right? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like it. I I mean I definitely think that's that's pointing to uh, uh, a space in the in the larger aesthetic map that is definitely underdeveloped. So, seems like seems like seems like a good wager. I, I'm interested in that. So when you think about the future of cities, I'm curious if crypto plays a major role, like an essential role or more of a kind of incidental uh, 
role. Do, do you know what I mean? I know yeah. you've met, I've, I've seen crypto kind of appear a little bit here and there in, in some of your tweets and in, in the networks. I know, I think you're on Urbit, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm just curious, how do you see the actual technologies that are emerging right now playing into a kind of hero futurist charter city or, or smart city or startup city or whatever you want to call it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, so we, we want to develop, um, uh, we want to develop an internal currency. This is like a project that we've been working on for a little while, like sort of you know, specking this out and so forth. I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's, I think it's quite important. Um, I, I'm less, I'm less bullish on like the governance angle. Um, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, there are a few ways to frame it. I mean, I think, I think like basically like the sort of the, the whole notion here with private cities is that um, sort of through this like brutal Darwinian process, we've developed a corporate governance system that's like pretty good. Um, and that the cities can be governed this way too. Um, and so I don't think you want like, you know, people who are sort of holding tokens to be voting on like every sort of minor issue, like they wouldn't be sort of voting on sort of in, in the context of Apple shareholders aren't voting on the design of, of iPhones or sort of like, I, I, I don't know, or lunch policies or anything like this. Mm -hmm. So I think like, yeah, I mean, certainly I, I think there's, there's sort of a role for like sort of an abstracted governance layer, like, you know, with crypto or something like this, where it's, yeah, I mean, you just, you just like, you know, I don't know, tokenize the, you tokenize the equity or something like that. And it, right. yeah, I mean, it's basically like corporate governance. That's kind of how I see it in the context of our city. Right. But I, so it sounds like you, you said you're not terribly bullish on the governance aspect of all of this. So it sounds like you don't, it's not like your vision is absolutely based on a certain trajectory of, of, of crypto infrastructure uh, working. It's kind of like crypto jives well with it and likely will play some kind of part, but it's not, it's not an essential part of the wager. Is that fair to say? Or um, yeah, I mean, I, gu I guess like, um, like the model, the model isn't predicated on, on like any element of crypto working, like sort of as it's broadly construed. Um, but I think like in our specific instance, certainly we want to have, you know, like world class by a mile regulations pertaining to crypto. Um, and it's like, a, it's a, it's a community that, that sort of, you know, we want to work with and that, um, yeah, I mean, that, that we want to, yeah, that, that we want to partner with and, and try to, you know, sort of work hand in hand, to develop regulations that like make it sort of super easy for them to do business in our city. Um, so sort of like from a demand perspective, it's like, um, you know, per, perhaps it'll be important. Uh, but from the sort of like conceptual model perspective, I think these things sort of work with or without it, um, at least in, in the way that I framed the model. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. I was just kind of curious about that. What do you think is the biggest obstacle in your way or like if this were to fail or just not not get the traction you're you're hoping for i mean any heroic project has to have a high probability of failure or a decent probability of failure which i think right. you know you have to confront it's part of what makes it heroic right so what would be the way that this fails um yeah i mean the, 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 there are a bunch of ways um so one is uh i mean one one is that like um yeah, I mean, like San Francisco gets like radically better or something like that, or LA gets rat New York, and, and there's and none of these people actually want to leave. I think that's fairly unlikely, but who knows? Um, I, I think, yeah, so that's sort of the demand problem. Um, there's also this sort of financing problem where it's like, you know, we have to raise an extraordinary amount of money um, and the unit economics sort of have to bear out. Like, you know, we, we're kind of making this argument that, um, you know, our sort of cost of cost of the land is going to be way, way lower than sort of, you know, um, you know, most projects, cause we're, we're like hedging all the demand risk by like 
<clears throat> by aggregating it in the cloud sort of prior to doing the project. Um, and um, yeah, but I, but I mean, sort of to the extent that like our demand thesis is off, there are kind of like these spillover effects into like our ability to to raise you know capital at like a you know sort of uh, you know cheap rate. Um, and then yeah, and then you can just like fuck up building stuff. Like you 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 can just make serious mistakes like building things and they fall over. Um, so there's there's always this material execution risk as well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. For sure. Cool. So I think that covers a lot of the the main vision behind Blue Book Cities. Uh, there maybe are a few other questions I want to pick your brain about. Somewhat random, if that's all right. Sure. Yeah. Let's do it, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, actually, one more kind of on the Blue Book Cities, uh, which is you have this kind of other uh, very closely associated project, which I think is kind of under the umbrella of Blue Book Cities called Praxis. Mm. And reading through that, it looks like you're doing a kind of, uh, you're experimenting with some fellowship models. Could you explain a little bit about what Praxis is specifically and how that fits into the Blue Book Cities vision? Yeah, totally. Um, so yeah, I mean, Praxis is our, it's our community. Um, the sort of the, the core notion is that people in Praxis are either working on heroic projects um, or looking for a heroic project. Um, we're keeping it sort of very, very small for the time being, but we have applications on our website. Um, but yeah, it's this like just amazing community uh, of people that are working on like hyper, hyper ambitious projects and are super supportive uh, sort of of one another because it's sort of based on this sort of shared uh, value system. And I think I think that's what's sort of really important here is, is developing these communities that are high trust because you have some expectation as to how people are going to behave because they sort of share your values and so forth. Um, but, but yeah, sort of specifically with blue book or with uh, Praxis, it's like, yeah, we, um, yeah, we have events and, and we have a chat and we're going to do a, you know, awesome retreat in January and so forth. But, but it's basically just a community of people working on these heroic projects that are like quite supportive of one another. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So I run an organization called uh, Indie Thinkers, which is sounds very similar in a way, different aesthetics, different kind of vision and purpose perhaps, but similar in many ways and trying to run cohesive, stimulating, truly valuable online communities is quite an interesting challenge. Yes. And so I'm curious in your experience so far building practice, it sounds like practice is more or less kind of the, the immediate concrete kind of bootloader for what will become uh, blue book cities is, is how it sounds. Um, what, what do you see as the essential challenge of making an actually valuable, stimulating, cohesive, community? Because if you're going to want to launch a new city or a new country from this online community, you must be thinking really hard about, okay, well, what types of events do we have to do? What types of things are not worth the effort? What, 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 how do you see, what's like your essential theory of, of truly valuable, cohesive online community? What, what do you think is the trick to that? I'm very interested in that myself because I'm figuring it out in my own way. Yeah. I mean, I think people have to be uh, sort of oriented towards, I, I mean, I just basically view it kind of like a startup. It's like some derivative of a startup or something like that, where it's like, yeah, I mean, um, people are all coming together to accomplish a sort of like shared objective. Um, I mean, in our case, it's like, you know, building this vision for the future that's implied by our, by our values. And we sort of do this via our sort of individual heroic projects. Um, but in terms of sort of the day to day, it's I, the, the question I ask myself is just like, are we creating sort of tighter bonds between all the members? Like, are they becoming friends? Obviously a lot of the sort of onus is on us and selecting, uh, the correct people. But I mean, I think I have a friend who worked on building a religion, um, in India and his sort of KPI was how many marriages are coming out of this. Right. And then sort of the, the secondary thing was like, you know, how many, how many, um, you know, startups are coming out of this in, in sort of, uh, how many, how many people are finding their co-founders like in this community. And for us, um, 
Yeah, I mean, we, we think about, you know, friendships, maybe that's sort of tertiary relative to those two. But um, yeah, we, we think about trying to create like these sort of deep friendships that people want to invest in because, you know, perhaps they'll they'll live together in the same city someday. But but if not, certainly they'll work together. Um, oh, and, and one thing I want to sort of mention is that uh, Praxis, um, the notion with Praxis is we want to build like a massive global community. And I expect that uh, sort of many, many Praxis members will move to the city. Um, but sometimes, you know, you get married or whatever and 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 you're stuck in a certain place. You have to take care of like your mom and she's sick or something like this. So we want to build like a sort of like a global community. It's not sort of like mandated that people move to the city to the extent they join Praxis. Cool. That makes sense. Yeah. Interesting. So so it sounds like basically you're you think of community building as optimizing for the number of quality relationships that emerge within the network. Yes. Yeah. It makes sense. It's interesting. So cool. All right. So. Um, I, I've heard from some of our mutual friends that you have some other interesting ideas, which I thought I might uh, ask you about. So why don't you start by telling us about what is conservative transhumanism, or I think what in a tweet you've referred to as trad humanism. Tell, what, what does this involve? <laughs> I, I have no idea, man. <laughs> I was on a call with, yeah, with, yeah, yeah you know, and, uh, and it just occurred to me that that was like a funny, like turn of phrase. I mean, I think, I, I mean, like, I guess if I was to elaborate on it and connect it to some of my other ideas, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of the transhumanist people, particularly like the kind of like VR heavy people, like like some of them seem not to like human beings. Like some some of them do, but but some of them really don't, and and they kind of want to change what it means to be human, and and they think a lot of things about human nature are sort of deep deeply undesirable, and you know perhaps that's perhaps that's true, but but I, I sort of don't feel um, like it's my place to to sort of like you know I don't know change human nature in a material way. I, I you know, I, I want to build like a society that sort of like, you know, is, is super like empowering and like gives people uh, a sense of purpose sort of as they are. Um, and it will help, help you know, I, I want to sort of people, people to improve themselves and so forth. But like sort of this question of like transhumanism, like fundamentally changing human nature sort of with technology, it's like sort of like, um, I mean, that's what we do with like liberalism, right? It's like we use these institutions and sort of like the notion is that like human nature is super plastic and we're trying to sort of like, you know, shape humans in such a way that we can get to this sort of like utopian state, um, you know, via institutional pressure and like, you know, with, with sort of education or indoctrination or whatever. So, I mean, I, th yeah, I, I tend to be fairly like opposed to these um, efforts to like, you know, fundamentally change human nature and these sort of assumptions about human plasticity, whether they're sort of of the li liberal flavor or the transhumanist flavor. I, I guess that's like this or gout. I, I guess that's my take. Yeah. Okay. No, I could see it. So basically, whereas the conventional ideological drift of transhumanism today is this kind of soft kind of lefty anti-human will to kind of escape human stuff you see a kind of transhumanism where it's like no let's let's merge with the machines to make human communities uh more stable more orderly and more conducive to to human flourishing is that one way to put it yeah, basically. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's basically my orientation. I, I think it's, it's quite hard to, to, to change, to change people. And, um, I, I, and I, I tend not to like sort of at, at a sort of like gut level, uh, many of the people that are engaged in these pro like just, so, yeah, I, I don't know. Like <laughs> just a lot of these people, it's like, I don't know that I want, I, I trust them like in sort of like architecting like my child's like mind or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, I, I'd right. like, yeah. Right. Like instead, like today, transhumanism is like installing magnets into your fingertips and like having a lot of piercings and living in like uh, polyamorous 
uh, commune uh, hovel somewhere. Uh, right. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. uh, no disrespect to those people, but you're basically saying there's this whole other possible vector for, for this transhumanist uh, interest where you actually turn all of that back around to a, an essentially kind of conservative vision all about, you know, kind of family and stability and law and order. I can um, see it. I, yeah, I wouldn't frame it like exactly that way, but okay. like, I, I think, yeah, like transhumanism for humans, like something like that. I mean, I think like, um, yeah, I'm not like full trad mode, but, um, but I, like, I, I understand a lot of the points that are being made there and I'm certainly not full, um, you know, kind of like lib, lib mode. So, yeah. 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 No, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, pigeonhole you or anything, but I'm just, I, I definitely see what you're saying. I mean, in my own perspective, I'm like the, the arranged marriage project that I'm doing now with default friend. It's, it's kind of trad. It's kind of like, uh, what are you calling it? Trad humanism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of trad humanism in that it's basically trying to accelerate, uh, technological capacities in the direction of restoring traditional values and traditional, uh, kind of human, human accomplishments. So, yeah, I know. I think, I think that's like a, that's, a, that's an area that's very ripe for research and experimentation, basically using, using technologies in increasingly provocative ways, like accelerate technology, but do it towards purposes that are essentially, uh, traditional. Uh, I, I think that's a very promising concept. So people out there, uh, go investigate, uh, trad humanism and develop, please develop this, this line of thought. I like it. All right. Um, what else? So you were a surfer for a while, a pretty serious surfer is my understanding. And I grew up on the coast in New Jersey. So a lot of my best friends growing up were, were surfers. I was very much like in the surf culture. I never got into it for some reason. I was always a skateboarder. I skateboarded hardcore from like age nine to like age 18. Um, and as someone familiar with surf culture, surf and skate culture, surfers are not exactly known for being the most uh, ambitious people. Uh, they're, they're not exactly well known for uh, heroism or futurism, you know, the surfer attitude is very much one of, you know, let's chill, just surf every day, smoke some weed, forget about everything else. And that's a pretty badass attitude, um, in a lot of ways. So I'm kind of curious, how did you go from being a surfer to having these, uh, grand heroic visions in, in, you know, politics and economics? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I don't know. I mean, I grew up in Santa Barbara. Um, so, um, yeah, all my friends in school surfed and, and skated and stuff. And so, so that was just kind of what we did. And, um, uh, I, I don't know, I think we were all like quite competitive with one, with one another. Like I, I was fairly competitive and like ambitious and so forth. And like, just given that this is what <clears throat> people were doing, this was sort of like the vehicle for my ambition as like a, you know, 10 year old, 13 year old, whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I started surfing like relatively late compared to most of my friends, but I, I got super, super into it, um, and dropped out of school um, in, in eighth grade and, and started just traveling around, uh, the country and, you know, mo mostly the state, mostly California, um, to surf contests. And I wasn't very good for a long time, just sort of kept, kept hammering at it, kept, you know, getting up super early and surfing every day. And, um, and, and then I got decent and I got some sponsors and got to travel around the world and do that till I was like 19. Um, so, I mean, for me, it was just like the vehicle for my ambition. And I mean, just like in any sport, like I mean, the, the people who are good are, are like insanely, like sort of like maniacally focused and, and, and so forth. So, um, right. Okay. So yeah, you, you, you built a serious discipline and ambition within surfing and then that kind of converted over to launching other more visionary projects out of, out of the ocean. But were you ever like hanging with your surf buddies and like talking about your like crazy ideas for starting countries. And they're just like, dude, chill out, smoke this one. 
<laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, I think, um, I guess, uh, like most of my friends that I spent, like most of my friends, like were, were people that were also like very, very good at surfing and like very focused and dedicated. And they had sort of like helicopter, like sort of parents that were, you know, managing them fairly tightly. So like, uh. To some extent, yeah. I mean, like, certainly, like, anything I would have talked about around this stuff would sound, like, totally alien to, to most of them. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I basically, like, sort of, yeah, I mean, I, I did sort of the surf stuff on, on the one hand. And then um, I spent a lot of time, like, with my dad, like, learning about uh, technology and investing and stuff like that as a kid. And um, di didn't talk about it a huge amount with my surf friends, frankly. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, one thing I was kind of wondering is surfers... And skaters, what a lot of people don't realize if you're not, if you don't come up through that culture is there's definitely a very, it's definitely very much a rebellious kind of attitude. And I could see surfing and skating being a pretty good incubation period for, for basically, you know, kind of uh, detaching from like mainstream expectations. You know, I could see that being yeah. very, that being very good. Surfers and skaters are very often like intrinsically anti-establishment, intrinsically kind of skeptical of all the stuff that normies say and kind of dismissive of that. And, and I think a, a healthy and, and empowering way. So yeah, it's kind of interesting to think. I, I, I wonder if uh, you could, you could, you could recruit more uh, heroic futurists from surf and skate cultures, which are actually really quite, quite uh, thriving and ambitious and disciplined in their own way, as you're saying, uh, just often they're seen as, as kind of checked out of, of kind of mainstream political affairs, but I think the overlap there is actually uh, not quite as hard to imagine as as people might think. That's super interesting. I actually haven't heard that uh, before. I, th I think that totally makes sense, though. I mean, yeah. I mean, certainly. Um, yeah. I mean, w when you when you like spend a lot of time in an environment that kind of like norms. Um, yeah, having disdain for like institutions and stuff. Like surfers, it's like you'll often have like some big storm or something like that, and then like the lifeguards try to shut down the beach, and they're kind of like you know. It's like they're the cucks or something like you know what I mean. Like it's sort of the, it's like come on man, just let me surf. Um, so yeah, I mean I think I, uh, that actually is an interesting connection. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, with skateboarding, I think it's even more uh, precise because you're constantly up against police officers and uh, security guards, and basically like yeah. street skaters on a daily basis are they basically have to be breaking rules constantly <laughs> to be able to do what they do. Yeah. Uh, and so I think the anti-establishment kind of mentality gets even more firmly locked in. So yeah, maybe, maybe we both have to look into surf and skate culture as a more fertile recruiting ground for uh, participants in our various uh, crazy projects. Um, I think okay. <laughs> interesting. Interesting. I like it. Um, I'm curious. I want to, I want to extract a little bit more from your kind of mental pantheon of, of heroes, because I'm sure you have them. I'm curious, like, so for instance, what, who do you, who do you see as the best American president? Um, it's an interesting question. I mean, I guess, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I was always kind of like a Jefferson guy. That was sort of my like, you know, er, early sort of like normie, um, you know, mode. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I like his sort of like vision for the sort of like, um, you know, dignity for the sort of yeoman farmer and like that, that kind of thing. That's kind of cool. Um, and yeah, Louisiana purchase. That was, that was quite good. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I, yeah, I'm not sure. No, it's okay. I, I'm just putting on the spot with random questions. I was kind of thinking the most heroic futurist or hero futurist president might be Teddy Roosevelt or something like. That's what I was gonna say. I was gonna say Teddy Roosevelt, maybe. Definitely, he definitely. 
of all the presidents, I think most successfully associated with himself, the aesthetics of, of heroic masculine, uh, you know, adventure, uh, towards, towards greater frontiers, right. I, of all the presidents, he must be the one who owns that, who who's won that kind of association more than any other. Right. Yeah. I think, I, I guess like aesthetically, uh, yeah, I, I definitely have like a strong affinity for also just like how energetic he, like, I think like, yeah, like just like when you're trying to do anything, it's sort of like energy and focus. And, and he, he was just like a remarkably sort of, those are the inputs to like, you know, some tremendous outcome. And he was remarkably energetic, just like writing like a book on like bugs or whatever, like when he was at Harvard and, um, uh, or, did you write a book on bugs or was it on, was it on like a war or something like, that? I can't remember. Oh, he, he wrote multiple, multiple books and some of them were on bugs and some of them were on, uh, wars. Yeah. He, and you're, you're right. He, he wrote a bunch of manuscripts, uh, relatively young age on a variety of topics. That's right. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Very cool. Very cool. Well, I only booked you for an hour, so I don't want to uh, take up too much of your time. I'm sure you're very busy, literally building, uh, you know, cities and in, in other countries. So, um, I don't, I don't, I don't want to uh, occupy too much of your time. Um, let me see if there's anything else. I mean, do you want to, why don't you tell us a little bit about how people could possibly get involved in Blue Book Cities or Praxis? Tell us a little bit about where you're at right now. What are you, what are you focusing on right now and next steps and how people can get involved or reach out to you if they want to? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, we have applications open for Praxis. Um, if you're working on a heroic project or you want to leave your job sort of at, uh, you know, at, at Salesforce or something like this, where you're just sort of like toggling around with, um, you know, buttons, then, then, you know, definitely, definitely reach out, apply. Um, and, uh, yeah, we're, we're also hiring for a number of different roles. Um, we are building, we're building a real estate, we're, we're building a real estate team. We're building out our engineering team and, and, uh, you know, we're hiring some designers and we're doing a bunch of different things. So if, if, if you're, if you're super excited about what we're doing, um, definitely reach out to me, um, on, on Twitter or sort of through our site. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's basically it. Uh, those two things. Cool. So you mentioned you're hiring. That's interesting. So did you raise venture or what? Oh yeah. We raised, um, we raised some money back in the spring, uh, from, uh, Patry Friedman's fund, Prenimos Ventures, um, Tyler Cowan's Emergent Ventures and Bern Hobart and a bunch of other angels. Is it public how much you raised or no? No, it's not. Fair enough. No worries. Um, so you're hiring. Okay. That's interesting. And you're hiring in what role? Say it again. Um, we're hiring, we're hiring some designers. We're hiring some people to work on narrative. I mean, we're, we're looking for, we're looking for like super talented generalists for the most part, but we're hiring a few, uh, software engineers too. Um, yeah. All right. Interesting. There, I'm sure there's at least a handful of people listening who uh, might be very intrigued about that. So very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, Dryden, it was a pleasure meeting you, man. Uh, definitely love what you're doing. Super interesting. Uh, I like you love big, badass visions. So, um, Really happy to have you on and to meet you and to learn more about what you're doing. I think my audience is going to be quite intrigued by it all. So uh, yeah, thanks for coming on and keep us posted, will you? Awesome, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right, Dryden, take it easy, man. Later. See you around. All right. All right. Hope you enjoyed that all. Make sure you go and subscribe to the channel. And remember, click that little bell, leave a comment, tell me what you thought of that. And uh, I thought it was awesome. Super interesting. I love people with big, crazy ideas. I mean, that's one of the key things this podcast has always been about. So uh, yeah, that was cool. Really enjoyed that. I hope you did too. Uh, if you have any questions, you can hit me up or reach out to Dryden uh, if you're interested in what he's doing. And yeah, other than that, just want to give a big shout out and thank you to my patrons. I got a lot of big, cool stuff coming up, so definitely stay tuned. I, uh, yeah, basically, Other Life has been growing steadily over the past year and IndieThinkers.org has been growing steadily over the past year. And they're both doing well enough now that I need to, for the new year, I'm kind of taking, taking a little Christmas holiday. 
and taking a step back and really thinking about how these things are going to come together in a bigger and better way in 2021. So yeah, I'm super pumped, super excited. Thanks for your interest as always. And uh, also I'm getting my assistant, Ben, who you might remember from Albuquerque. I'm getting him, uh, he's been busy with school, so I didn't want to, you know, interrupt his, his focus or anything like that, but uh, I'm, he's now finishing up with school. So I'm bringing him back on to help me accelerate the content and get more done. So uh, shout out to Ben Williamson. And I think you'll be able to expect a little bit more content coming out. The one of the big hopes for 2021 is with Ben's help, I'll be able to, ex I'll be able to do more content for other life and also make indie thinkers bigger and better. It's been a lot of work doing both at the same time. So uh, yeah, I'm gonna, I got some, I got some promising plans for making, making some efficiencies, getting Ben to help and uh, yeah, should be able to do, do more and do better for both and make them synergize even more effectively. So that's, that's the game plan for 2021. Got a lot of specific things coming up. So stay tuned. We got uh, the, the course with Michael Millerman is starting in January. That's going to be awesome. Uh, it'll be on Leo Strauss and uh, yeah, he's actually going to be on the stream soon. So stay tuned for that. All right, gang, subscribe to the podcast on your phone. If you missed any of this and uh, thank you very much. I'll see you soon. Later. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you like this episode, you should send it to a friend. Just email it to them or post it on your social networks, whatever. And to learn more about what we discussed in this podcast or to send me questions to address in future episodes, please just go to otherlife.co and you'll find everything there. There's actually a ton of cool stuff on there, so check it out if you haven't already. Thanks again, folks. I'll see you here next time.